0: This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went, tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor, man. Today on the Simple Pastor Casual Podcast, I'm going to talk to Andrew Howe who is a estate planning attorney. He specializes in building trust for your family, also asset protection. As you guys know, I try and bring on guests to uh, offer their insights, but I always suggest hiring your own professional to um tailor things on to what you've got going on. And I try and bring the guests to so I can ask the questions that I would ask if I were sitting in your shoes so you guys can get more data points and learn about what you're gonna ask for. I believe that you usually have a basic level of knowledge before you start engaging with a professional. Just like investing. You gotta pull the trigger at some point, but there's a basic level of stuff that you should know before going into it. I'm pretty excited about this new entity structure that I'm building for myself. For those of you in the mastermind and my current investors and my deals, uh, you'll hear about my Fort Knox strategy, which uh, makes LLC creation and all these entities look like child's play when you uh, learn what I'm trying to set up for myself. Email if you got any questions in the future that I can feature on the next Ask Lane podcast or the monthly email newsletter that I'm going to try to put out. And uh, enjoy, guys. Take some notes. Overwhelmed by the amount of stuff is on simple passive cash flow? Don't know where the heck to start? Go to simplepassivecashflow.com/start to sign up or text the word simple to 314-665-1767 for the curated course to get you up to speed on the past 2 years of content. Again, join the free web course The Journey to Simple Passive Cashflow. Go to simplepassivecashflow/start Or text the word SIMPLE to 314-665-1767. Hey guys, this is Lane with the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. Please make sure you go to the website, sign up the Hui Deal Pipeline Club to get access to deals I come across. And for you guys who don't know, the Hui Deal Pipeline Club is a free investor club where I filter investments and underwrite the numbers and partners myself. Unlike other investor lists and groups, mine investors have personal access to me and know that I personally have skin in the game and investing alongside you guys. So uh, also, please go and share this with friends because if you don't, soon you won't have anybody to have a midday lunch with when you're uh, not doing anything and figuring out what you're going to do after you have all the simple passive cash flow you want. So today I have Andrew Howell. How's it going, Andrew? It's going well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so it's been a while since we had a real life lawyer on here and to talk about asset protection. But Andrew's from York Howell. You can find him at YorkHowell.com. But he's the co founder and managing partner of a law firm, York Howell and Gaiman, who Correct. advises on estate and asset protection and business structure. Because I know a lot of the guys have been having a lot of questions and Maybe we can, you know, every situation is different, right, Andrew? Maybe we can kind of talk through uh, different, different uh, scenarios so guys can get a little bit better picture and kind of point their, uh, their, situ- their boat in the right direction. But maybe let's talk about on the big stuff first. And, uh, you know, you, in your book, Entrusted, you wrote about the term asset protection, and, uh, which often means different things to people. What are the two most factors that come to asset protection, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, so asset protection planning can mean a lot of different things to different people, but it's really, in my opinion, because there's so many of us yahoos out there that are talking about asset protection planning in so many different ways. In all honesty, I think that asset protection planning should mean the same thing to everybody. Uh, it's, It's, in my mind, a pretty simple idea that you have the opportunity to create barriers between assets and potential creditors that you might have that make it harder for those creditors to get after those assets and therefore making it likely or at least more likely that you're going to settle a lawsuit in your favor. And that's the, that's the heart of asset protection planning that, that you want to be in a position that if you are ever involved uh, with a creditor coming after the, you, that you can look at that creditor and say to him in as in many legal ways, look, spend all the time and money you want coming after me. And even if you're successful, Which, of course, there's no guarantee you will be because I'm going to fight you the whole way tooth and nail. But even if you are successful and you get a judgment against me, I don't have any assets that you can collect upon. And putting yourself in a position to bargain and settle that lawsuit is extremely important because 95% of lawsuits will settle before they ever get to trial. And that seems to me that it's imperative upon you to put yourself in the best position to settle that lawsuit. So again, in my mind, that's what it should mean to everybody. This idea that, yeah, I want to protect my assets. You know, we talk about, or I say that I'm an estate planning lawyer, but in my mind, that's a really broad topic because what's in your estate is everything, right? All of your assets, your business interests, your real estate, life insurance, money in the bank, that builds up your estate. Now, when people hear the term estate planning, they immediately jump to, wills and trusts, and what happens when you die. And that's certainly part of it. But also your estate is how you're planning around that while you're still alive. How are you protecting that estate that you worked so hard to create and that you want to protect for your needs and the benefit of your family for, you know, the future. So again, it's this really broad topic and asset protection planning is is probably the hottest subcategory of estate planning, this idea of protecting the estate.
0: Yeah and Again, that was just to,
1: to kind of clarify.
0: And that was oh, a sorry. big uh you know turning point in my own view of this, you know, because like you said it's kind of esoteric discussion on all these different forms of of asset protection. But yeah, when you no think question. about it at the end like you said the the most of the the these things are settled in some kind of uh, out of court settlement. Like you never really have your day in court. It's all based on on I mean, different what or what are how are you built your asset protection and that's going to be based on the uh, or calculate some kind of mathematical settlement at the end. And that's what you really need to be thinking about first.
1: Yeah, I mean, that that's absolutely correct. The vast majority of any lawsuit that even gets instituted will be settled. Now, I do think that the problem, uh, the the perception of this asset protection planning game, and when I call it a game, I don't mean to minimize its importance. It's a really important game, but i just like to highlight there are hundreds of different ways to play this game. And that's really the problem is that there's, you know, all of my colleagues that are out there talking about asset protection planning as well, and they just start throwing out tools and techniques, right? You want to um, have separate ownership of assets with your spouse, but maybe you want to go to Nevis and, and create an offshore trust there and stash all of your assets. Now, all of these tools and techniques that we use for asset protection planning, in my mind, fall on a spectrum of some fairly simple things that you can do that give you some protection to some really dramatic things that you can do that give you a lot of protection and that's sort of the unfortunate part of asset protection planning that the more you want unfortunately the more complicated your life will become and everybody wants to keep things simple these days so that's a it's a hard tightrope to kind of walk you know how do we keep it simple but how do we also get some protections in place So any of these tools and techniques that your listeners are hearing, you know, from again, colleagues of mine that are talking about equity stripping or limited liability company formations or domestic asset protection trusts, these are all useful tools in the right situation and they fall on that spectrum. What your listeners need to really think about is where do they fall on that spectrum of planning where they've done enough that they're sleeping well at night, but not so much they've just dramatically complicated their ability to access and enjoy their assets, and that's, again, sort of that tightrope that you need to walk. Now, going back to your question, though, there really are sort of two fundamental risks that I think are are in our daily lives. And the first risk are are sort of the, the risks that are inherent within assets that you own or, or asset-based risks. And, you know, one of the uh, things that you had indicated to me is, is your listeners are are interested in real estate uh, investing and so forth. And real estate is this unique asset. We refer to it as a hot asset. And I call it a hot asset, not because this real estate's really good looking, right? But because it can burn you. And what I mean by that is that if I take $100,000 and I make a down payment on a new rental property, and I own that property in my name, well, I've made an investment, right? $100,000 into that property. And I, I don't care what investment you make any investment that you make has a potential of loss, right? You could lose that investment. I go buy a thousand shares of general electric stock and GE goes bankrupt. Well, I've lost the value of my investment. I buy a piece of property and the property values go down. I've lost that investment, but my liability risk in buying real estate is much greater than the investment that I put into that piece of real estate, right? I may have paid hundred thousand dollars into that property, But if LeBron James comes onto my property, slips and falls and injures himself, and he can't play basketball anymore, well, my damages are not, doesn't have anything to do with the amount of equity that I have in that property. It has everything to do with the amount of damage I have caused him. And he's going to say, okay, I can't play basketball anymore. I have lost earning power of about $78 million a year. I can't afford that lawsuit, right? My liability risk is much greater in that asset. So with the use of like limited liability companies, form a limited liability company, you own that piece of property inside the LLC. The LLC being its own entity is now the owner of that property. If somebody comes and slips and falls on that property, well, the LLC is responsible as the owner. The only asset it has is the property itself we've cooled down that hot asset so that it now can't be burning you more than beyond the the loss of the initial investment. The other risk that we see is, is a risk that would result from your, your own personal life or professional life. This would be a a direct based risk. Um, You know, certainly professionals, uh, lawyers, doctors, those kind of things carry a lot of professional liability risk just in their daily practices and, you abate those risks with things like insurance and malpractice insurance and so forth. But you also have heightened liability risk directly the more successful you become, right? That bullseye gets bigger on your forehead as its perception there's a perception of deep pockets appear. And and you know, I don't like to to work on this fear monger basis that just because you're gonna walk out your front door, you're gonna get sued. But unfortunately we do live in a litigious society and there were about 21 million new lawsuits filed last year in the United States. So again, the idea that the more successful you become, the more um, uh, contracts you get involved in, the more deals that you're making, the more interaction you have with clients or so forth, you are now raising that liability risk. And what can you do to help abate that, right? Because what we're trying to do is is compartmentalize that risk, making sure that your personal life does not necessarily affect the assets that you might own,
0: or at least we have some barriers of protection there. Yeah, and I think uh, I've probably explained this in a different terms, but same thing. You have the uh, liability within the, the LLC with the, uh, you know, somebody trips and falls or so people are partying on the deck and they, they fall and sue you from inside the asset. And of course, the outside attack, which is, you know, you going out, maybe killing somebody driving. Maybe, uh, you know, you're working at your day job, which is outside the asset in this case, and, um, you know, you get different liability suits there. So, you can come at it two ways. And I think Absolutely. we're talking about the same thing.
1: Yeah, no question. And, you know, on that kind of direct-based risk, what we we we'd like to use, you know, limited liability companies, partnerships as well, but for a different reason. Right With the asset-based risk, it was to compartmentalize that risk, put a piece of property inside an LLC that sort of somebody slips and falls, that LLC is getting sued. But then we typically use sort of a holding company structure where we'll form another LLC in a state like Nevada or Wyoming or Delaware that has charging order protections. And and it's like if my wife and I own a limited liability company together in the state of Wyoming and that LLC then owns LLCs underneath it that hold those properties. Now we're getting both of those risks, the asset-based risk abated, and we're also getting the direct-based risk abated. And the reason is is that if I get sued, I don't own those underlying assets. right? I own an interest in this limited liability company created in a state like Wyoming. And what that means is that if somebody were to come after me and sue me personally and they spent the hundreds of thousands of dollars that's necessary to go through litigation and they don't want to settle and they take me all the way through a trial and the court agrees with them that I am caused them damage and they get a judgment against me well their method of collection against my LLC structure in a state like Wyoming is getting this charging order right and all the charging order says is that if the LLC were to ever distribute me anything it's to go to my creditor not to me. Now, of course, the LLC is also owned by my wife, and the LLC might decide that we'll just start making distributions to her. And this charging order that my creditor is holding is not ever getting paid. So there's this—it's used in a combination of ways for for different reasons, but all, but really meant to to be a a, a charge against those two uh, risk levels.
0: Yeah. So maybe it would be, it'd be good to talk to, uh you know some examples here. You know so. I call it the good, better, and best structure. I think the you know when you're talking about having that intermediary holding company, Delaware, Nevada, or Wyoming are usually some of the more um, most commonly used ones. I'd probably call that one of the best, and then that tier three of asset protection strategies. But you know when people are first getting started, what they're doing is they're just either buying it in their name. You know, like take someone that lives in California. Or Seattle or Hawaii, and they're buying a property in Atlanta, for for example. What, what are some of the questions you're asking there? You know, maybe of course it always depends. You know, what kind of assets are they trying to protect on the personal side? But uh, what do you think is the appropriate amount of protection there?
1: Wow, that's a that's a really tough question. Again, again, I it really in my mind depends upon the client's desires, and and I do honestly believe that the more effort you put into this. The, the benefit will be greater, obviously. And I, I know that people sit there and they go, oh man, this sounds like a lot of overplanning. But in reality, it, it doesn't have to be as complex as everybody's thinking, right? And like in my situation where I was describing earlier of having the holding company there in Wyoming and then sub LLCs underneath it. Well, if it's structured the right way, there's really only one tax return that gets filed, which is at that partnership level. All those LLCs underneath it, Um, which are considered single member LLCs are disregarded and don't require a tax return. So we're not talking about thousands and thousands of of tax returns. Now it is true that you want to run each of those LLCs independently, right? They have their own bank accounts and the finances are, the financial transactions are going correctly in and out of that account for the assets that that LLC owns. And that does create some administrative headaches. Now I think some of the things that go into the decision though, here in, in what you're asking lane is, um, you know, potential costs. Right? This has to be cost effective. And certainly you've got legal fees and so forth that go involved in setting all of these things up and you have ongoing maintenance costs. And And depending upon the state that you're operating in, those ongoing maintenance costs may not be insignificant. Right, California, you mentioned, you're paying $800 a year just to have an entity within the state of California. Uh, not only that, California is so aggressive when it comes to their taxation. Um, I mean, I I have a number of clients that are in the Amazon selling business and California is just being so aggressive with co- collection of sales taxes. It's it's a very big issue going on right now. So so some states make it more difficult to to do business within a, a kind of a reasonable economic framework. So that has to come into play. But like forming a Wyoming LLC shouldn't be that difficult. And, and so I, I have a hard time saying, okay, what's, you know, good, better, or best, because in, in, in my mind, there, there is only the best, and that's what is appropriate for that client. What are they willing to put into this? How much protection do they actually want? And you know, what I do is the discovery process, right? We meet, we talk with the client, we find out what their ultimate objectives and goals are. And you know if I have a, a husband and wife that are retired and they're getting involved in real estate investing, but they don't have a lot of direct-based risk in their own life, Um, well, you know, maybe we change that estate planning structure in some kind of way, but if you've got a client and he's got, you know, five rental properties that he's purchased, I think that it has to be the advice that you do set those up in separate LLCs. Now they might very well come in and say, okay, no, I'm not good, ready to do that. I want to have at least some protection. So I'm going to create one LLC and I'm going to own all five of those properties in one. Well, certainly that's better than doing nothing. Absolutely. No question. But they've got to realize that they're compartmentalizing all of that risk in the, all five of those assets, right? We're holding all of our eggs in one basket. Somebody slips and falls on one of those properties. Well, the equity in all five properties are now, uh, is now potentially at risk. So, again, my job is to say, look, this is the best way that we can be planned and protected. And, and where do you want to go up to that point in time? I mean, we can get crazy with things. Like I had a client who we set up a trust in Nevis for a a few years ago because he had had this major liquidation event and he wanted to really have protection of those assets to create kind of a, a family legacy based upon our book. And he really liked those ideas. And he was willing to put in that effort and deal with all of the administrative headaches that go along with it. But he also has a family office. He has an in-house CPA. He has an in-house financial advisor and they can take care of the administrative headaches that go along with that. So again, yeah, it's this tight rope that we need to walk. We really got to find out from the client's perspective, what are their goals? What are they wanting to achieve and, and what is their risk level? And then we just try to work planning backwards into that.
0: All right. And you know, I'll say from the other end, from the investor standpoint, I see a lot of investors putting the cart before the horse they go in, they got one rental property. And I mean, I'll just say from my own experience, I didn't have any asset protection for about three years at least. But then again, I, I, you know, I was in my twenties. I didn't really have anything to lose to. And this is (laughs) the biggest,
1: the biggest hurdle in my, in my profession, right? This blood sucking vampire lawyer wants to talk to you about death and taxes. Most people don't want to deal with those topics. And, um, you know, I, you and I spending a Wednesday morning talking about these things, we're both probably a little bit masochistic. Now, I really think this stuff is, is interesting, but that's why my wife thinks I'm so boring. But uh, no, it's, it's a hard thing to get people motivated to talk about this stuff. And yeah, I, I see it all the time. I, it is not uncommon for me to meet with a client who has a $15, 20000000 million net worth, and they don't have any planning in place, not even a will uh, that everybody ought to have. So it's just one of those things that, you know, people are living their daily lives and they're concerned about other things and, and, and whether it you know, be their professional lives or something they're investing in, or th- they're learning about something and, and how to make their lives better. It's hard to get them to think, okay, look,
0: how do we plan around some of these less fun things to think about? All right. And, and I think that's my point here is it sounds very overwhelming and what people end up doing is they just use this as an excuse not to do anything. You know, that's definitely not the way you should go. And, and, you know, I'm not giving legal advice or anything, but I'm just saying, you know, eyes on the prize, you know, why did you get started in this real estate in the first place? You know, what's going to happen if you keep doing the normal 401k and mutual fund and stock market. But, uh, you know, I mean, maybe let's talk about like building the blocks one step at a time. So someone has a rental Uh, You know, they live out in California and they have a rental out of state in Atlanta. Are they going to get that LLC in Wyoming or one of these good charging order states? Or are they going to get that LLC in California or Georgia? maybe, maybe, Maybe we can talk about Washington instead just because there's that strange California LLC rule. Just to make things simpler. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say California. Uh, yeah, anywhere you if, there, you're, yeah. if, if you're if you're a California there, resident, yeah. anywhere you have an LLC, they're going to want to charge you that eight hundred dollars. Yeah, let, let's not like, go there. Guys. Yeah, let's say uh, okay. somebody
0: lives in Seattle, Washington, and they're buying something out in uh, you know Atlanta.
1: Yeah, you and you make a good point um, before we even get to that, which is this can be overwhelming and daunting, and. Um, you shouldn't ever be in a situation where you, where you do feel overwhelmed. Whoever you work with should, should take you slowly through this process and you wade through it, right? You've, you've got this elephant, uh, and, and how do you eat an elephant? Well, one bite at a time. So the best thing to do is in my mind, you concentrate on your family protection first. And that's why I, I always like to deal when I'm working with clients with helping them get their wills and trusts and power of attorney documents all in place so that we now have that family protection component in place. And then, you know, we can do it at the same time, but usually it sort of comes as a next level, sort of this idea of asset protection planning. But, you know, going back to your direct question, if I'm a Washington state resident um, and I own a a property in, I think you said Atlanta, um, well, what I want to do is I want to form an LLC in the state of Georgia. Uh, there was a a bad court case that occurred a few years ago down in Florida actually, where a uh, property was owned by an uh, an LLC that was not a Florida LLC and that LLC had never registered to do business within the state of Florida, and as a result, the court didn 't give that LLC much respect and allowed the the person to go directly after the owners of the LLC instead and What that did is is sort of hit home that look if you 're going to do a property in Atlanta. Well, you want to form that LLC in the state that that property is located or at the very least have your Washington LLC uh, registered to do business within the state of Georgia. Now, why I'm not really a big fan of that is now you're just paying two registered agent fees, right? You have one in Washington for that company and then you have it also in Georgia because you have um, registered the business to do business there. So I say just start it in, in Georgia and not have two registered agent fees to pay. Now, the problem is, is that Georgia does not have the LLC protection that we talked about before with the charging order protection, meaning that if my wife and I own a LLC in Georgia and uh, somebody were to sue me, they theoretically could go more against my interest in that company besides the charging order. They could theoretically foreclose that charging order um, and therefore become a, a member with some limited rights in the LLC, but they could still become an owner to a certain degree, which we don't want. So I'd still stress that in that situation with owning property outside of your given state, that having an LLC as a parent company in a in a state like Wyoming or, or Nevada or Delaware would be great. Now I keep using Wyoming as as, as an example. Um, it's one of our favorite places to do it. It's it's a very economic place to do it. Nevada used to be. They've they've really increased their fees, and it's become. Uh, more expensive to do business within the state of Nevada. I think that they're too close to California, maybe through osmosis, they're getting all their bad habits. But Wyoming actually was the first state in the nation to even allow for LLCs back in 1977 And I, you know, I know it's kind of funny to think of Wyoming being on the cutting edge uh, of anything, but when it comes to LLC laws, they are. So I like, I like these states. We also do, you know, Alaska and um, Tennessee and South Dakota have also uh, operated with some charging order protections in their LLC laws.
0: I think I just want to point out like this is, you're starting to build the blocks here. You You started with that first LLC and then now you're talking about building that second LLC, which will own that first one in Georgia it's a, it's a phase thing is the way i see it uh, yeah, absolutely
1: correct. I Sorry, I lost my mic there for a moment. Yeah, it's um, take it one step at a time and, and proceed at your own pace. Again, the fact that you're doing anything has to be looked at as this, this wonderful, uh, I mean, you're doing an amazing thing here, whether it be just for yourselves and protecting your assets and securing your life, but you're also doing an amazing thing for your family, right? A, estate planning, my grandfather was an estate planning lawyer himself, and he always said that estate planning was this act of caring because you're doing something nice, you're caring for that next generation. But then you'd always slip in, but you've got to care enough to act. So the fact that you're doing anything, I think is great. And just go into it at your own pace. Now I have clients that want to dive into the deep end and get everything protected to the nth degree. That's certainly fine, right? we all have these personality types, everybody takes the Myers-Briggs, right? So it's one of those deals where you have to play to your strengths. And, and uh, but then also surround yourself with those advisors and professionals. They're going to hold you accountable and make sure that this stuff gets done. There's always going to be a level of apathy that develops where you're sitting there saying, "Oh man, I don't want to talk to that bloodsucker again today." But you've got to you've got to put that effort. You've got to have that mental commitment to to get through it.
0: And so, what are we uh, what are we going to tell our friends out in California? Are They just out of luck. <laughs> they just have to pay that $800 fee. No, they certainly live in a beautiful state. <laughs> okay. Right I now, mean, I love California.
1: You have to understand, we have a property down there that we've had in our family for my whole life, and uh, down in San Diego, and and I really feel like it's my second home. I used to spend my summers there, so I love California. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I don't know what the taxing authority is thinking about. I, I, I don't have. I, mean, I had a a brother uh, team that are real estate investors. And they do these large, you know, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae loan type of of transactions. I mean, very, very wealthy people. And they moved from California because of the tax issues. Um, They're they're now residents of Utah. Now, Utah has a 5.2% state income tax. But, man, this was huge for them because they went from about 13% down to 5%. That's a meaningful difference for a business owner. And what is that doing for the state's economy? It's just pushing business out of it. I don't know what California is doing. They need to they need to start looking at how they're going to attract business back into that state.
0: I recently came back from kicking the dirt in the high elevations in Panama. The site of the investment I am proudest of in my personal holdings, which is turnkey coffee farmland parcels. Coffee cash flow and a legacy investment within turnkey management. Go to simple passive cash flow coffee to get a parcel in your mind before the whole mountain is gone. So at this time, what is a what is an investor to do? Because I mean, if you're owning just you know one or two properties that's cash flowing, you know a couple hundred bucks a month. It's you know a few thousand dollars a year. I mean that 800 bucks that's like a quarter of your your uh, profits right there. I mean at at some point, a lot of people are just going to say screw it and just not even have an LLC. Just do something else. Yeah, and there, I mean, there's certainly other
1: options. Again, remember that an LLC is just one of these tools on that list. Um, there are other options. Uh, there are, are, are various types of trusts that can provide great asset protection planning. In fact, we oftentimes will use um, what we call a domestic asset protection trust in combination with LLCs to give some greater protection. There's some tax planning things that can be done where um, trusts in states like Nevada can be set up where they are responsible for the taxation of of the income uh, as opposed to the person directly. Now, California is really aggressive in, of course, um, combating that. But as long as you do it again, according to the code and in a reasonable way, you should be able to to get some abatement. Um, Really, though, quite honestly, California has taken such an aggressive stance that if I am in California and I own a LLC in Ohio, well California is taking the position that because I am in California, I am still doing business in California with that LLC even though it's in Ohio and I'm now potentially having to pay that franchise tax. I mean it's it's aggressive to to a degree that is is again just pushing all of who I would consider, you know, some of my more wealthy clients out of the state of California. I mean, it really is an exodus. Now they're still keeping their homes there because they like to visit, but it's no longer their primary residence. They're living full-time somewhere else. So it, it's a bad deal. It's it's, and it's a vicious cycle because it's going to continue on.
0: And what are they doing? Like living 180 days in, in Las Vegas or Hawaii or something like that?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, you go through all those those procedures to make sure that you're doing it the right way. Um, I, you know, I like with the clients that I mentioned earlier, who had now moved to actually they moved to Park City here in, in Utah. Um, no, they, they physically move. They spend most of their, their, the year here, probably more like nine months out of the year. Uh, and then they're also big skiers and so forth, but then they'll go back and, and still maintain their, their homes in California and their children still live there. They're all grown with kids. And so they're still, they're still um, traveling back and forth. But, you know, most of us don't have that luxury of being able to pick up and move because we have the huge deep pockets that allow us to go and buy a property and, and, and still be able to function under our business in such a way that, that it doesn't cause a huge disruption to our life. So no, I, I feel you, but what we've got to can, kind of do is look at those objectives. What are we trying to accomplish? Because like with the domestic asset protection trust, like I just talked about, the cost in setting one of those up is, is substantial in it, in and of itself. And you know, these are the, the sort of the, the newer type of asset protection trusts that are out there years and years and years, people would go to some offshore locale right the Cayman Islands or Switzerland, and we're going to stash our money there. In 1997, Alaska started to allow people to do the same thing domestically, meaning creating a trust for their own benefit, putting assets inside of that trust. And as long as they go for a certain period of time without creditors attacking those assets, the assets are now beyond the reach of creditors. Alaska, that's a three-year look-back period, but Nevada has adopted a statute like that, and it's a two-year look-back period. My home state of Utah actually has one. We have a three-year look-back period, or we can also do a couple of other things that quicken that look-back period to only 120 days. So there are, there are options that we have out there. It's not
0: necessarily the use of a limited liability company that is the end-all be-all. So some of the listeners are starting to get into private placements, and that's kind of where I've been heading um, these last uh, few transactions. Um, I've been mostly in the general partnership or the GP, for short. Um, a lot of guys are more, you know, on the past more on the past the size of the limited partner LP. What's uh, what are your thoughts on protecting yourself as an LP in one of these bigger syndications where there's a PPM involved and you know there's the general partners? And there's maybe even non-recourse debt to thrown into the mix.
1: Yeah. So this is, you know, I, I I I've been practicing now about 16 years, and so I I lived through the the Great Recession, uh, and I am I am seeing this a lot more. It feels in some ways a lot like 2006 and in, in what people were getting involved in. Um, now that had a whole bunch of different economics behind it with the the the, the mortgage-backed securities and all those kind of things that caused issues. But the, the issue that I have with PPMs, and it, by the way, I want to make this really clear. I am not an investment advisor. Please do not take any in my investment advice. But the problem I have with PPMs is you are losing control, right? With direct ownership of real estate, you know, I'm the owner of that property. And yeah, that comes with all of the burdens of being a landlord, but it also comes with the benefits. I can control it and so forth. When I make an investment through a Reg D offering, uh, which is where that PPM comes through, uh, a private placement memorandum, which is the disclosure document. And it's, it's funny. I don't know if people ever actually read every word of those PPMs because if you do, <laughs> it's probably going to scare the heck out of you because basically what it does is tells you all the different ways that you might possibly lose your investment. So a PPM in my mind is not, is not necessarily bad or good, but what it does require on the part of the investor is much more due diligence. I, I highly recommend that when you're getting involved in, an, in a private investment like that, you know, this, this is an exception to the formal request or the formal requirement of registering, registering your stock with the SEC, right? This is again a regulation D offering and Reg D uh, has a, has three exceptions to having to go through formal exceptions or formal um, registration, excuse me, of your security. Cause that's what people talk about when you're going public, and I'm going to go public and I'm going to allow my ownership of my company to be bought by the public at large. Well, it doesn't make any sense for those of us that might want to do a smaller deal to have to pay the millions of dollars to go public and the years out of our life to try to get there. So the government said, okay, well, we're going to carve out some exceptions where you don't have to go through formal registration. And these are, again, found in Reg D. And the PPM is one of the requirements in all of these exceptions. Uh, another requirement is that you've got to be very careful about the type of investor that is coming into those investments, right? Accredited versus unaccredited investors. But again, because of that loss of control and I'm sort of a control freak lane, I, I really like to control the things that I can in my life. Um, I have, uh, again, when e- I have this advice just to my clients, that whenever you get involved in something like that, you know, don't just say it's a bad investment by any stretch of the imagination, but give it the due diligence that it deserves. Right. And
0: yeah, it's kind of funny you say that PPM, you know, who reads it, a bunch of engineers will read every word. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. And I, that's
1: great. I, I really, I mean, it should, the PPM should really give you a good idea of who the players are involved, uh, how their level of sophistication allows them to run a fund or allow for an investment that's going to be profitable but it does have a huge part of it. I would say three-fourths of most PPMs that I read talk about the potential risks. And it's, like, it's sort of like when you're watching TV and you see the advertisement for a, 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 pres- a prescription drug, right? Hey, it's going to cure your depression, but it's going to cause all of these other <laughs> issues. And you're going, wait a minute, where is the, where is the benefit there? So, again, PPM, I've, I've seen people make a lot of money with the PPM investment, and I've seen old people lose a lot of money with the PP investment, a PPM investment, and, the, and I think the real difference is the amount of due diligence that was put into reviewing that investment. Who were the players involved? I mean, we come uh, here in the state of Utah back through the Great Recession. We were one of, called one of the fraud capitals of the world. And it was because we, we live in a, a society here that's, that's somewhat patriarchal um, because of the religious uh, in, involvement. And there's a lot of trust that goes along with that religious affiliation. And unfortunately, some of these scrupulous, you know, investors were going around and using that relationship within the community to get people involved in programs that, that were basically Ponzi schemes. And they were doing that through P- private placement memorandums. But the problem was, is people were looking at these PPMs and saying, oh, and it was a really interesting uh, sort of phenomenon that they would see these rate of returns, which were like four five, 6% a month rate of return that these investments would pay And they would just go crazy. they say, oh, I love that, right? That's going to allow me to become completely free from the rat race, and I can get out of it, and I can uh, not have to work a nine-to-five, and I can put my 401k into this great investment that's paying me 5% a month. And what was interesting is there was a study done that showed that the greater amount of potential return on investment the less likely people were to do due diligence, right? If I said to you, you're gonna get a 25% return on this investment, you were less likely to do due diligence on that investment than if I told you you were gonna get an 8% return. That was fascinating to me. You're saying, okay, well, what are you really doing? Are you chasing that return? And I really love that quote, which is when you're involved in investing, one of your primary concerns, if not your primary concern should be not the return on your investment, but the return of your investment, right? Current, you know, concern number one. So again, my point here is invest in things that you know, invest in things that you're willing to put the time in to understand. Go through that sort of checklist in your mind of, is this investment going to accomplish my goals? It could be a PPM. It could be direct ownership of real estate. It could be, I don't know, but investment in the stock market. Who knows, don't you? (laughs) That's gambling in and of itself, right? But again, uh, be just
0: careful about uh, any investment that you're getting involved in. Yeah, and you know, I, I and there's this kind of a trap here for you know limited partners there, where they're looking at this executive summary, but there's nothing in an executive summary that's really telling you how this investment works. I mean, to be able to really analyze it, you've got to have the P and Ls, you got to have the rent rolls, you got to know how to analyze the deals yourself. If not, you're just investing with the people and. And yeah, that's, I mean, that's probably why the, the advice is, you know, when you're going with a private placement, it's more the people. Exactly. Because you as the passive, you guys, frankly, just don't know enough about what you're investing in to be able to determine. Because I see awesome executive summaries that are just total crap. I mean, the, the assumptions that you're using are just ridiculous. Like they're, they're thinking that they're going to raise the rent 20% and that's just not going to happen. Yeah. Not even in Austin or Dallas. That's right. So so yeah. like a lot of the guys, like, you know, the structure goes, the general partnership goes out and gets the loan and they, they, do, they do everything. But the most important thing, talking from an asset uh, protection standpoint, is they're signing on the debt and the limited partners are kind of in the back of the plane. Now, for a limited partner coming in, bringing 50 or 100 grand into a deal, <coughs> is is there a need for an LLC to insulate them? Or no, would you I, just I, find going personal?
1: It could be, again, um, you look at that that asset and, and whether or not that asset carries risk with it, right? The asset itself is a limited partnership interest. It's not a direct ownership of the assets underneath that limited partnership. And limited partnership laws say that a limited partner in a formally created limited partnership does not have personal liability risk if something goes wrong within the partnership. A general partners typically do. And that's, again, something that we've got to be careful about. It's what does that partnership agreement actually state? What kind of liability abatement is there for the general partners? How are we holding that general partner interest? But if you're buying a limited partnership interest, no. I mean, Again, the asset itself is not going to create any direct liability risk to you. But from the converse, right, this limited partnership interest that you bought is a valuable asset, and if you were to get sued, how do we make sure that is protected, meaning it's not owned by you directly? And so, you know, I do have like in my structure, my parent entity that owns a number of sub LLCs. We have some property down in Southern California. So I do have a California LLC down there that owns that property. I have another LLC underneath my parent that owns my my cash and liquid assets and life insurance and those types of things. And then I have uh, another LLC that owns intellectual property in the book that we've Written and we actually just got done with our second book, so it's um, it's this idea that I want to have those assets shielded from me personally. Even though, like with my intellectual property rights, the books, I'm not going to get sued over one of my books, right? They're not. You no, know, I don't really give any major advice that people would rely on and, and and to their detriment. So I'm not too worried about that asset itself, other than the fact that I want to protect it. Protected. So again, that LLC plays both parts.
0: Right, that was what my Laura told me, but it's like if I have the LLC, I might as well use it too. For absolutely for being LP and a
1: well, and deal. the other thing, the other thing that's really nice about that kind of holding company family LLC, sometimes people refer it to, is a lot of our generation, Lane, is thinking about the idea of wealth transfer in a different way, and this is really what our book was based about. And trusted that you know we're looking at our next generation as our desires with at least within them as being self-reliant. And being able to produce on their own, we don't want you know trust fund babies or trustafarians that are just sitting on the couch all day eating bonbons because they have so much money in the bank they don't need to do anything.
0: I like but I think, trustafarians.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but it's like you're right. We, I don't know about you, but I find a lot of enjoyment in producing. Like I love it. I like to get up in the morning. I like to have a purpose to do something in life. And I think that when you lose that purpose, which is easy if you don't have the the fire in your belly to to kind of produce on your own. Well, that that is is sort of shifting how our generation is viewing estate planning in general. So much of estate planning has been based upon, you know, theories and ideas that were in previous generations, right? You take our grandparents, the, the greatest generation, well, they lived through an area or an era within America that is completely different than any of us have ever experienced. Right, we say we went through the Great Recession and we were really unhappy. Well, our grandparents went through the Great Depression and they weren't just really unhappy. They weren't eating. And that caused a much different view of this idea of assets and how assets would transfer. Assets were really important because they didn't have them. And that generation viewed estate planning, right? This idea that I'm going to give assets to the next generation as an obligation, like 40% of that population thought that it was an obligation. They were obligated to leave an inheritance to their children. Our generation does not feel that way. It's about 6% of our generation that feels we are obligated to leave things to our kids. What we want to do is give them the ability to make a million dollars rather than the million dollars itself. So coming back and incorporating all of that, well, how do you do it? Well, a lot of people talk about this idea of family banking and, and and keeping things together as a family. And instead of giving things to kids, you make the company of the family a bank that they can borrow from, right? This is the, the Rothschild method, or sometimes it's called the Rockefeller method, although it's not technically the Rockefeller method. And now what we're doing is we're creating accountability within that family where the the kids aren't just given things, they are loaned that money, certainly at much better interest rates they could otherwise get. So they're still getting a leg up and they have the money available when they probably couldn't get a loan at all, but they have accountability in having to pay it back. It keeps the family together because they're required to report about how their business is doing. They're required to teach each other, all of these different kinds of things. And the nice thing about sort of that family LLC is that's a great place to do that family banking, right? Like in my LLC, within my family, we set aside a certain amount of money every year that our kids can choose what they want to invest in. And they've got to do research and they've got to, you know, come up with an idea of what they might want to do with that money and come up with business plans. My kids are 12, 10 and eight. And they're doing these things and they like it. They've started to kind of, so, you know, get it, get creative with it. And then we also set a sort of uh, set aside a certain part of our estate every year that can go to charity, but the kids get to direct that, but to do it, they've got to research the charity. And yeah, we want to give to the animals. Okay. Well, great. Which one? Well, the animal sanctuary, we'll go talk to them or look at their website, do some research. And now the family's having these conversations that are much more than, Hey, how is your school today, right? You're having these deeper conversations about investing. You're opening your kids to these eyes of the world uh, and these, this education of the world that they are not going to get in school. Right? Your yeah. kids' schools are not going to teach them all of these concepts about financial management and, and all of these sort of uh, you know, characteristics that they need to or internalize in order to be successful in this world.
0: Yeah, and I, I just want to applaud you there. I mean, you know, me growing up in Hawaii, of all places, there's a big wealth divide here. There's definitely haves and haves-nots and a lot of trustafarians here. I mean, and it's, it's sad. Like, you know, I went to private school in Hawaii. Um, a lot of kids do. But even in that, that little bubble, there's people with these trust funds. And now I look at them, and they're just some of the saddest people out there they they aren't you know going after anything they're just kind of living off the the trust fund and and they're just they're kind of nickham poops to be honest um yeah
1: lane when i was i have i have a direct example of that i have a i have a friend um he is actually in my fraternity yes i went to a fraternity it was fun back then okay now (laughs) what what happened was is he's a couple of years younger than us Um, or than than my class was, and he was coming into our fraternity. Well, this kid, when he was 18 years old, came into his inheritance of $140 million. This guy was a fun guy to be around. (laughs) I mean, I remember going down to the Ferrari dealership. This is, I was 20 and he was 18. We go down to the Ferrari dealership and I watch him put his black American express card down on a brand new Ferrari that we drove out in that day. Now, if you saw this person today, he is the most unhappy human being you've ever met in, his, in your life. He's never gotten in a real relationship because he always thinks that anybody who is going to be involved with him is just looking out for his money. But that's sort of what he puts out there. So maybe they are. Again, it's one of those things where he was given, he was given the burning log, right? His parents had created this roaring fire and they gave him the burning log and it's burned him rather than giving him the flint and kindling that would have helped him build his own fire. He didn't have to, right? He had. Not only did he have enough to play the game, he, he had enough not to even have to play the game. And that's not what I want for my kids. I want them to be able to, to have a meaningful ability to play. But I want them to feel the desire to play. Because it's fun. I, I don't know. You if you, would, if you look at life as a challenge and you like to accomplish things, man, I don't know how you can sit on the couch and eat bonbons. Yeah.
0: One of the first things I looked into getting away from Wall Street were the many crowdfunding sites out there, but I just was not into paying another middleman to give me a false sense of security and then take a chunk of the profits from the operator and me, the investor. Check out simplepassivecashflow.com backslash LEND or text the word MONEY to 314-665-1767. These lending opportunities are exclusive to Simple Passive Cashflow listeners to power operators I trust and will put my brand on a line with. Again, for more information, check out simplepassivecashflow.com backslash lend or text money to 314-665-1767. I've got another story on the other side of that. I know none of us really like that kind of example. We all kind of get a little upset. But like, you know, there's also the the, the person who inherits us, you know, a few million dollars, but then they're still living in that scarcity mode and they never really uh, understand how to, you know, spend or create money. So, you know, they, they may be rich in the bank, but they live very poor and, and they don't spread the wealth to others. It's also another, what I see too.
1: Yeah. And, it, and, and doing that paradigm shift where you move into the imbu- abundance mentality and you really do realize that there is, I mean, there's, there, there is an incredible world out there and there are so many opportunities available and and that you, you, you really can't take it with you right and and enjoying that asset and and making sure that you have a good quality of life there's nothing wrong with that because if you want to make sure that what you have produced during your life is replenished and allowing you to spend it there's options to be able to do that right that's life insurance comes into play all of these different kind of things come into really try to create for you a structure that allows you to live the life that you want, not live in that mindset of scarcity. Yeah. I I agree with you. I've all the time. I have, I have a client right now. They, um, they have a a very successful family business up in park city. They have $5 million sitting in the bank in cash and, and uh, they were just telling me how they were really concerned about being able to come up with their taxes and they weren't going to have the, the, they weren't going to exchange gifts with each other for Christmas to save money. I was going, Wow um okay that that's one way to look at
0: the world i guess so yeah it's it's an interesting uh it's an interesting view yeah and i have a, a laundry list of different ideas to put into a future trust but that'll come probably on come maybe five years from now who knows if it ever comes out but like one of the ideas i have is you know you don't relinquish the uh you know the trust has a lot of money that kicks off a lot of passive cash flow but the uh, The heirs don't get access to that passive cash flow unless they create passive cash flow on their own, and they get it like a one-to- one ratio or something like that.
1: Yeah, the, I mean I, I think that and again, this is another tightrope that we need to walk, because you know a lot of us, a lot of us have done very specific things in our lives that have made our lives successful. And what you have to be really conscious of here is differentiating the idea of 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 principles versus preferences. Right? My principles with what I might want my kids to, to achieve in their life, again, might be self-reliance, a good quality of life, having a good family, you know, having some peace in their life and not too much stress. Right? These might be the preferences or, or the principles that I would want them to have within their life. Now, how they go about that, that's all the preferences. Like what worked for me is I went through a lot of school, formal education, college, you know, undergrad, law school, so forth. That worked for me. Now, I will tell you that I don't think I really started learning until I got out of law school, but I did need that background in order to do what I'm doing now. Now, that's my preference for how I became self-reliant. I don't necessarily need each of my kids to go to law school to try to create that uh, same self-reliance as well. So when you're getting involved in sort of putting these parameters within your trust or with any of these governing documents about how assets would be managed after your death, Keep in mind that that the better idea in my mind is to, again, create the purpose. What are we really trying to accomplish here? And, like, for example, I have a client who is a, a maniac when it comes to triathlons. He does six Ironman triathlons every year, and he's a very successful business guy. But he spends a lot of time on training, on travel, away from his business. It is a very important thing to him. And he's put as one of the purposes of his trust is to promote health and fitness he just thinks it's added to every aspect of his life right his his wife thinks that he looks better so it's improved his marriage he has more discipline within his business he has again this competitive nature that's come out and has been able to direct it into the triathlons as opposed to say being adversarial within his workplace so it's really had this meaningful effect on his life and he says, look, if something were to happen to me and I leave this trust for the benefit of my kids, one of the things I'm willing to support is their pursuit of health and fitness opportunities. He doesn't say that each one of his kids needs to go run a triathlon or, or a marathon in order to be a beneficiary of his trust, but he's now set that tone. And from f- in future generations, if he might not even know them, he will still be able to pass on that legacy of health and fitness that he liked. Now, that's just one example. But again, the idea here is you, getting real specific is hard because I had a trust that I was dealing with a couple of years ago. It was drafted in 1948. A very wealthy man, and he put a lot of money aside for his family, future descendants, for their education. Now, in 1948, the trust defines educational expenses as tuition, room and board, and books. That's what the educational expenses were back then. Well, this couple of years ago, we had 20 great grandchildren getting into college. And now college requires you to have a laptop computer. So we made a request on the trust company that's now running this trust for the family. And we said, you know, give us 40,000 bucks so that we can go buy 20 new computers for these kids that are getting into college. And the trustee says, no, we're not going to give you that money. The trust does not provide for us to pay for computers, only books. Now of course that's a crazy position to take because had you gone back and you said look in 1948 what was the purpose behind what this gentleman was doing well he wanted to promote education and if instead of defining education as of these really specific things he said I want to I want to provide benefits up to the discretion of the trustee that allow my children and future descendants to compete in the most appropriate and competitive way within the school environment and they can really have anything that they need to do so and now all of a sudden hey giving us that computer is not a question so again that's kind of the idea of, of, of where you want to be careful of getting too specific whether we want to set more of a purpose sort of that northern star that we're going
0: towards i think that's a great uh, example there you know something that's coming to mind is and you know, kind of like your triathlon guy, I mean, maybe you're a hard-charging entrepreneur, but maybe your heir just wants to be a government worker and you know be a a nice guy to uh, people they meet, or maybe they want to go to the Peace Corps for some reason.
1: I mean, yeah, I, I've got a child of my own that I've, I'm convinced is going to join the Forest Service. We have this small ranch up in Montana, and I love to fly fish and I love the bow hunting. This is, uh, th- this is the kid that hides in the back of my truck just to make sure that he gets to go on the fishing trip. If he tries to go to law school, Lane, I will slap him upside the head. It'll ruin his spirit. He better go join the Forest Service, live his life under blue skies, and having a fabulously fulfilling life doing so. Now, what they also have to do, right, and this brings up a good point, is when you're creating that benefit for the beneficiaries, you've got to be really careful about this concept of equal, right? Everybody wants to treat their children equal. But when I think of equality, I think of it in two very different ways, right? Equality of opportunity and equality of outcome, right? With equality of opportunity, I'm going to provide the same opportunities to each of my children, where they choose to take those opportunities is up to them. My daughter is in five downs classes and plays on two hockey teams, so she might go to the NHL, maybe she'll become a ballerina. And her life path is going to be completely different than my son who's going to potentially join the Forest Service. Now, unfortunately for my daughter, she was born to a dad who is 5'9 on a good day and my wife who's five foot four, So chances of her becoming a ballerina or an NHL hockey player are not good. But that's the idea, right, is that you create the equality of opportunity. But each of those beneficiaries need to understand that there are consequences to the choices that they take. And, yeah, my son might choose to go into the Forest Service. He has to understand that chances are he's going to have a lower salary than my other son that might choose to become a doctor or something like that.
0: Yeah, so a lot of very uh, gray area you know, discussion here. That Probably it's best if people just get a hold of you and just start talking through this stuff. Uh, and some other things like you know, I've, I've heard of people not giving the money to the trust if the person doesn't pass a drug test. I mean – is that pretty common, too? Yeah, we put substance abuse
1: clauses in our in our trusts. Now, um, again, you've got got to decide what your own family values are, and, and I've actually had, with some of the, the relaxing laws throughout the country, uh, clients wanting to to carve those substance issues back, where it's not just necessarily the fact that somebody might be using a substance. Uh, But whether or not they're abusing the substance, and it could be any substance from an over-the-counter drug to, um, uh, you know, alcohol, it could be, uh, you know, hardcore drugs as well. But um, the the problem, of course, with a child that has a substance abuse problem is that any assets that would go to them are going to exacerbate that problem, right? Money isn't good or bad. In fact, we equate it in our book to to dynamite, right? Dynamite's not good or bad, but it can certainly be used for good or bad, right? It can build roads and mine tunnels and natural resources and so forth, but it can also be used to make bombs. And the interesting thing about both money and dynamite is that it's not a question of whether or not they'll make an impact on somebody who receives them. It's how big of an impact it will make. And if you have a child with a substance abuse issue and you hand them a stick of dynamite, well, that's a problem right? So typically our substance abuse provisions provide, look, we're not just going to cut somebody out. We're going to try to help them, right? You look at the family as as a business. And I know that that's sort of a callous way to talk about it, but I don't think so really in how I view it. If my family is a business, that means that every member of my family are the biggest assets of that business. And I put a lot of investment into these assets, right? I'm educating my kids. My kids go to private school. So you talked about private school there in Hawaii. I I feel for your parents because I know what they were paying tuition wise. So it's one of those deals where, where I'm putting this big investment into these people that I love to death. I would die for any of them. Um, But looking at it in that way, it's a different mentality and sort of how you start structuring the planning um, as you go along, and really what your family is going to look like. I mean, right now, so many families sort of look like a, a monarchy, right? You have mom and dad as king and queen at the top of the family, and then the disciples underneath it. The problem with that, and what we've seen, and why most family wealth transfers are dissipated by the third generation, right? We've heard this shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Is because when mom and dad pass away, there is this division of assets that occurs. Right immediately, a ten million dollar estate that goes to five children is now a two million dollar estate. Right, each kid has two million dollars, and the erosive effect of dividing the assets can cause issues. Because as you know, Lane, right, you can get into an investment for ten million that you might not be able to get into that same investment for two. The power of that 10 million of dynamite sitting there can have a much larger impact than those smaller sticks of dynamite too. So, you know, not necessarily thinking about dividing the assets, but holding them together as a family unit. That also means that what we've got to do is we've got to replace mom and dad at the top of the family. Or another way to think of this is mom and dad are at the center. They're the nucleus. They're the gravity that's holding everybody together. But mom and dad pass, that gravity is gone and everybody spins off on their own. And yeah, sure, people are still getting together and having Thanksgiving dinner, but they're not talking a whole lot. There isn't much family interaction, we're starting to see this more and more as families start to uh, dissipate. Our idea is, what if we took that gravity, the center of the family, and not necessarily have mom and dad at the center of it, move them off to the side, sort of at the same level as everybody else, and instead have the family together create that family purpose. What are their values, their mission statement, and so forth? Because that now is going to stay there even if mom and dad pass away. That's the gravity that's still holding the family together. Again, some of these things we've talked about, the idea of a family bank. And my family's going to have to run this thing together. They have to stay together because of some of the things that we've put there. And I'm fine with that. I want to try to create that system
0: where uh, uh, my legacy potentially is going to live on to the greatest degree. Oh, you're not making the Rusta the trustafarian babies happy out there.
1: Well, it all it of course means everything <laughs> I'm talking about is regularly going to wind up completely different, right? All of my kids are going to be, you know, strung out or something like that, right? Because I talk about these things. Now I'm joking, but it's one of those. Uh, I'm going to do my best. Again, my family in my mind is my greatest asset, and I'm I'm going to try to put the largest investment I can into them.
0: All right. Well, yeah. Thanks for coming on, Andrew. Uh, if you want to get your contact information for you to get a hold of you. Yeah, the best way to get a hold of me uh, email's great. Uh, TeamAndrew, that's
1: one word, T E A M A N D R E W, at yourcowl.com. Uh, that comes to me and uh, my four assistants, two paralegals and two assistants. My paralegals will get mad if I call them assistants. So, um, yeah, it'll come to all, all of us. Uh, yourcowl.com is our website. Uh, again, great way to get some information about our firm.
0: Yeah, and um if you guys want to get a hold of uh you know another another topic like this, we can bring Andrew back on. If you guys want to shoot me questions, Lane at Simple Passive Cashflow. And we'll see you guys next time. Thanks, Lane.